How are we doing, guys? It's Fitter Food Radio, episode 104. They are coming at you thick and fast now. It's me, and I'm here with Keris, of course, as always. Wagwan. feels like Groundhog Day, because we've just done this four times, and then one of us has fluffed up. We fluffed up. <laughs> so- fluffed up. <laughs> So we end up, people don't realise how many podcasts, we, we haven't mentioned this probably before, I'll get recorded and don't make it out. If we just went proper organic with them and just put them out there, <laughs> what we recorded, we'd be on like about episode 5,000 by now. <laughs> Jeez. We've done like 50, we've done over an hour and actually then bunged it, Scrapped haven't we? And it. just gone, I'm not even sure if there's anything, which is silly because there probably was some value in it, but we definitely go off on tangents big time. It's a tough one though with podcasts because, you know, you have some people that message and say, oh, I love your podcast, but I wish it was a little bit shorter because then I'd be able to fit it in in my dog walk or my commute to work or yeah, something yeah. like that. Then you get other people saying, oh, you know, you do some short ones and it's, I miss your longer ones. Yeah. And then some people say, cut the chit chat, get to the point. And some people say, I really like the informal oh, chit chat. Yeah. Well, <laughs> like, the, the reality is, and we know this. Never going to please anyone. You can't please everyone. But we like, we like to keep it real. We like to kind of keep it informal and organic, so to speak. And, and I actually quite enjoy listening to a bit of chit-chat if it's quite natural and there's a bit of banter there and stuff when I listen to podcasts. Well, I listen to some that are educational, but I do just feel like I'm listening to a webinar where yeah. you, like, you listen and, and some people come on and they go, now today we're going to talk about this. This is what happens with this. And that's relevant to me. Like I teach, I need to do that kind of learning. Mm, of um, but. Then there's a few that I've noticed this trend towards doing like less than 10 minutes. It's driving me bonkers because <clears> by the time I've set up my dog walk and you've got the poo bags at the ready and you've got the lead sorted and you plug your headphones in and it's a lot of faffing and you get ready and you plug in and you start walking and it's like, and that's the end of the podcast. <laughs> it's like, oh, God. And that's that. And I have to, I'm quite fussy about what I listen to. I'm like, it's got to be something I'm going to learn something new today. You know, like, and I have to trawl back through and I'm like, Who's told, who's decided that we only want five minutes episodes mm. now? And like, they're prolific. Everyone's doing it. Yeah, it I've seen two popular. minute ones, which yeah. is just ridiculous. Like you've literally just got... Moaning. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's, it. That's it. Have a good day. Hope you will. It's like thought for the day. And I'm like, yeah, but the faffing around and trying to find... And then it mm. runs into an episode that I didn't yeah. really want to listen to that, necessarily. That doesn't appeal to me. So, yeah. Well, it doesn't appeal to me to do podcasts like that. It doesn't appeal to me to listen to podcasts like that. And truth be told... I don't get it anyway, because I'm a bit like, well, if a podcast, for example, was two hours long, not that ours ever are, some are, as in other people's, it's like, well, then pause it and listen to the rest later. Like, what's well, the, I just wanted to like, do you know well, what I mean? Yeah, well, why, why do you have to complete a whole episode in a particular amount of time? You know, it's like, it's like reading a book or listening to yeah, an audio book. You, you don't do the full shebang no. in one go. No, yeah. no. But also there's also the thing of summarising everything at the beginning, which I totally understand why you do that. For me, it ruins it. I'm like, ah, don't tell me, don't tell me. Like, I want to hear everything well, play out. I want the conversation. I want. It's the... interesting you say that because sometimes I look at podcasts and I actually read the description and the description doesn't sell it to me. And I'm like, no, I leave that. Whereas sometimes when I'm driving, of course, you know, can't be on my phone when I'm driving and I'm not podcast I let, I let him just play and it will go on to an episode and i end up really enjoying it but actually afterwards when i was a bit like oh um, what was the name of that guest again or something like that and i'd look at it and think do you know what if i had read that description i wouldn't have chosen to listen to this podcast because that doesn't sell it to me yeah so it kind of just shows sometimes that kind of unknown and just seeing how it goes yeah yeah it's nice and then you end up you might enjoy it you might not yeah. i suppose equally sometimes i've tuned into a podcast that i thought 
oh, that sounds amazing. Yeah. And it just you, some of the ones I massively under delivers and I'm like, oh God. It's funny because someone that I listen to, I'll be like tidying the bedroom or something and you'll be like, how can you listen to this? Like the voice is so monotone. So that's like, quiet. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we just need you to consume more antioxidants <laughs> through blueberries specifically. <laughs> <laughs> There was one line that just got repeated back and I was tidying up and this guy on a podcast went, he was interviewing a woman on Alzheimer's saying, are you basically saying, when you say eat less sugar and eat more healthy fats, are you basically saying don't eat blueberries which have got sugar in and eat more burgers and hot dogs because they've got fat in? And I was just like, that's exactly what she's saying. Because the guy interviewing is really amazing and intelligent. It was trying to draw her out to say the right thing. But you're like, it's just painful. I see what he was getting at. Because sometimes, like, I kind of almost do a bit of a, I suppose, try and get you to simplify something that you've just said and almost be like, okay, just to clarify, here's what you're saying. Yeah. But I just think our kind of podcast is just a little bit more conversational. It's a bit more informal. You're an expert. Of course you are. You're well clever. But what I'm saying is that for me, the podcast you was listening to wasn't that casual. It's quite a bit of a geeky podcast. So I'm a bit like, I doubt anyone that was tuning into that <laughs> podcast was thinking. Don't eat blueberries. <laughs> There's so much sugar in blueberries. Yeah. You know, like best cut fruit on the head. To be fair, blueberries are getting very big though, I have to say. I don't know what they're doing to them in Mexico, but they're like... Oh, it's in the size they're of The them. size of grapes, aren't they? But anyway. What you meant, you know, like bit of a celeb at the minute. No, no, no. Just going right no. to their mid. There's loads of... Going right to their mid. So much research to support berries. Like as in every different kind of, you know, antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, eye health, everything, loads of benefits. But when I look at them in the supermarket, I'm like, but the berries are the size of apples and they're like brighter than they've ever been mm. and sweeter than they've ever been. And you're just like, well, you need to go back and pick them locally, don't we? Anyway... We're not we talking do. about berries today. We are talking about... Well, I found that coincidentally, I suppose, talking about berries and carbs and stuff like that. Keris was like, I want to do a podcast on insulin. <laughs> and I was like, right, then we will. <laughs> Only because, again, there's so many trends that are going on right now in the fitness industry and in the nutrition industry. And at the moment, it's really interesting because you're more, I'd say, you've got one foot in the fitness industry, probably more than me. And I've got one foot in the nutritional therapy kind of Where's world. Where's my other foot then? Tied to mine. We're doing a three-legged oh. race. <laughs> <laughs> right. well, you can say you've got one foot in this one, one foot in the no, gelato shop. Yeah, probably. <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's probably true. One foot in the nutrition industry, one foot in the ice cream parlor. <laughs> Sounds like a nice balanced lifestyle to me. What I was about to say is, so we're doing a bit of a three-legged race where we kind of come together and I'm like, oh gosh, I've just read this, this and this. And it always goes through fads and phases. And at the moment, there's a lot of focus on, you know, low carb has always been there, but now ketogenic is kind of, I mean, it's always, ketogenic was kind of very big the last couple of years. And now I'm seeing it in the nutritional therapy world do like a big kind of surge again. And everyone's like keto, keto for various different things. So it was very big in kind of sports performance side of things. And then if anything, the science suggested that wasn't really... It was like an endurance kind of... It was, wasn't it? Yeah. Wasn't it? Um, and it's not really... In terms of performance, there's nothing to say that it's going to be any better than, than other different nutrition interventions. Very individual. I think, again, you've been looking at some studies on this, but just kind of looping around in nutritional therapy now, and especially for cancer, ketogenic diets are having kind of you know a lot of focus there. And, and I definitely think there's something but, in but, that. But it's still very much in its infancy, isn't it? In terms oh, completely. of completely. 
Completely. And it's for certain types of cancer, not for all types of cancer. And I think eventually what's going to happen is there's going to be, we've said this before, but different nutritional interventions for different types of cancer. But across the board, there's about 10 to 20 things everyone should be doing that's anti-cancer. So before you go down the route of kind of the extremes, get them in place and then give your body the best chance. But just to kind of move back to the hormone insulin, one thing that's kind of apparent to me, and you've seen this again in the nutrition certification that you've done, is there's a massive misunderstanding about what insulin does and the role of carbohydrates the role of carbohydrates and insulin in weight gain and now because we have type 2 diabetes as well as type 1 diabetes everyone is kind of jumping to these conclusions you know so if we get high amounts of insulin through carbohydrates it equals weight gain and insulin is a storage hormone and actually I have to give a shout out here to two people who've really kind of helped me understand insulin better. One is our favorite Dr. Tommy Wood and number two is Dr. Brian Walsh. Both of them have done loads of podcasts and courses and things on insulin and the science behind it, the new research behind it so that you understand it better. And so actually you kind of, uh, for me, it's nice because when I've looked at the new research on insulin, you can see how you can reverse so many of the disease processes that are driven by insulin, which is things like type 2 diabetes, but also cancer and heart disease even can be driven by insulin. And you can reverse it by addressing the things that dysregulate insulin or mean that insulin's action isn't how it should be within the body. And it's a lot of what we're already doing, which is nice. But now you understand the mechanisms that you're supporting. And as a nutritional therapist, I get to go deeper and geekier about the, the kind of maybe supplement or diet side if I need to to kind of make sure that somebody, you know, it's hard to use the word reverse, but definitely halt the disease process. But I would definitely say with things like heart disease and type 2 diabetes, the research now suggests you can reverse them, Mm -hmm. which most people don't know. And people email us and sometimes say, I've been diagnosed type 2 diabetes. Do you think there's anything I can do with diet and lifestyle? Sometimes I'm like, jaw hits the floor. Like, I can't believe that you don't know this yet. Like, how does... Our industry knows so much about this, and yet your GP who's diagnosed you with this condition has never, ever said to you, there's a lot you can do with yeah. nutrition and lifestyle and exercise for this condition. Maybe even... But the thing is, is you know, like diabetes is, I think it's changing right now, but it's often been referred to as a purely a diet-related disease. Now... Type 2. Type 2. Yeah. Type 2 diabetes, yeah. And on the surface, it very much is because you make the link between foods that spike blood sugar, consume them too much, too often, blah, 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 leads to weight gain and all sorts of other things, and you're type 2 diabetic. However, we always try and look at the bigger picture and look at it as a lifestyle, like we always say, because what decides the foods that you eat? You know, is it just that you make that decision to eat loads of sweets, to eat loads of processed food, like predominantly? Or is there a reason behind that? You know, are you seeking comfort from food? Are you eating poorly because you can't afford to eat better? You know, maybe there's that kind of like, you know, economical aspect of it, et cetera. Yeah. And it's like, I think the, the second we start broadening our horizons a little bit and being a little bit more open-minded with how we can get on top of something and just know that it's, it's never just one thing. Yeah. I think there's like, we've talked about this before, there are kind of key barriers to somebody making some positive changes when it comes to their nutrition. And key barriers tend to be, it can be a financial, it can be time-based, it could be knowledge-based. And it's the latter 
I used to think was the main reason there wasn't enough buy-in to a lot of these solutions. So I used to think, even just looking at my own family, well, if they're not told this by a GP or if they're not, if this information is not available through kind of mainstream medicine, they're not being educated. They're not going to believe in that process. And it doesn't matter if they kind of hear it on TV or a book. It's not the same as being mm. told it by the person that is telling you about medications to suppress your cool. symptoms. Yeah. And so it was a real kind of thing for me was knowledge. But then having said that, I've worked so hard, as you have in the last 10 years, to increase knowledge. And there will always be what my dad calls the wildebeest that just, you know, ignore you and just walk off the edge of the cliff anyway. Mm. And, and you have to just let some people go. They're never going to oh, make that change. Yeah. And and, yeah. and there is, for some people, even you've said, I don't understand. Like, I like cake and ice cream. You like cake and ice cream. But when it's a life or death, and it is, it does get to that situation with some people. I have a lot of cases where I'm like, you need to stop smoking, drinking eating refined carbs, everything, inflammatory markers are up. Like this becomes life or death for that person. Mm. And I still see people go, I want the alcohol, I want the cigarettes, I want the cake. And it's very mm. sad. And that's when... It know, is. But like you say, you've got to be able to disconnect and be like, right. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, you know, we often talk about this and, you know, we want to help as many people as possible. But, you know, in the same way, we know you can't please everyone. You also can't help everyone. Yeah, yeah. Because... It's like you've said, you know, it's, it is an inside job at the end of the day. Yeah. And, you know, your dad said this the other day in conversation. And I just thought, gosh, like, it's so true. I might have already mentioned it on a previous episode, so forgive me if I'm repeating myself. But, you know, he said, like, my health is my responsibility. Yeah. And that's not to say you can never seek help in any way. Yeah. But it's your <laughs> responsibility to seek that help, first of all, instead of expecting help to just come to you. But it's also your responsibility to then take action yeah. based on the help that, or the advice, the guidance, whatever, that you have received. And for us, it's like there's only so much you can do, you know, that classic, you know, you can take a horse to water and all of that. Yeah. You know, there is only so much that you can do. But it's for the individual to either play the victim and be like, oh, you know, poor me, I'm diabetic or I've got all this going on, you know, la, 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 la. Or you can play the victor. And yeah. actually be like, right, I'm in a powerful position here because I know what things I could potentially change to help me in the current situation that I'm in. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's like we said the other day, isn't it? It's like people moaning all the time about having no money. Yet every time you see them, they've got like like a brand spanking new jacket on or yeah, a new yeah. car or they're going on another holiday. You know, hang about. Like, yeah. You know, make your mind up yeah, yeah, if yeah. you've got no money or, or... Or you're spending too much money. Or you're spending too much money. <laughs> you know, it's the same with these people that, that they moan about their ailments until the bloody cows come home, but then give you a million reasons why they can't make any of the changes that you've suggested. And it gets boring after yeah. a while. <laughs> yeah. But you and I are quite different in that sense, aren't we? Like, like, I mean, I pull people up on it and I'm like... Yeah, I think for me... You're a bit nicer than me. I think it's sad <laughs> in that, like... I've said this to you before. I don't want my entire time that I spend with friends and family to be discussing ailments, but half of them are suffering with like, you know, various different signs and symptoms of ill health. And some of them are kind of talking to me about, you know, I'm getting diagnosed with depression. I'm getting diagnosed with some kind of immune system problem. I'm getting diagnosed with maybe osteoporosis, osteopenia. And I'm like, when was the last time you ever looked whether you were eating bone nutrients? Like never, mm. you know, and then when I talk about bone broth or sardines with bones in and you're just like I like a kid yeah basically <laughs> <laughs> and then you're like 
yeah, this is why I've probably got no friends left. But anyway, there's only so many, so long I can see you be unhappy and not well and not productive. You know, other practitioners have spoken about this on podcasts that we listen to where they've said there just becomes that divide eventually where it's like, okay, keep doing this action and this is your outcome. You're not very well. You don't look too hot. You feel overweight. You've got poor body confidence, poor lack of confidence. You're unfit. You can't walk up a hill. You're exhausted. You know, like it, it just goes on and on and on. And we do have friends in that situation and they do occasionally call upon us and say can you help can you help can you help and we do help we'll always help but after a while I've, I've started pulling back and you've started pulling back because mm. we're like you know we don't necessarily want to get up every single day and repeat what we do but we do it because mm. we also but what we do really want is we want energy and we want happiness and we're still not talking about insulin by the way but, but we will okay Anyway, let's but, dial back around to insulin. That's we're never going to get through. This is going to be a complex one. I was just going to say, though, something. Yeah, no, forget no, about go on, it. Go on. No, no. I, no, it's just like, you know, like just everything you're saying. And I kind of think like, I'm because I'm always so conscious of ensuring that people know that it's not a case of healthy, unhealthy. It's never one thing like we say. And we don't live a life of perfection that sometimes people think that we do. No, no, no. You know, well, well, I say that. I mean, I'm always posting up about me eating ice cream and, and whatever else. And, <laughs> and we enjoy those things as part of a healthy lifestyle. And the reason I'm saying it is we went to the pub on our local pub after an evening kind of dog walk with Hamish uh, over the weekend. And we bumped into like some of our neighbours who have obviously, you know, they know us, they know what we do. And he was like, oh, but it's uh, sparkling water and slice of lime for you isn't it and yeah. I was like well having a pint yeah yeah <laughs> and he almost like looked a little bit he was like he went really well yeah but, and, but I looked at him and saying like why do people get this in their heads that because yeah, yeah. I train because I'm a PT and I'm nutrition I just don't drink nothing the slightest bit processed or sugary or whatever passes these lips and I just think even in this day and age it's the world we live in you know, people are just like it's either you're either healthy or you're not. Yeah. You know, it's and it's like, no, stop it. <laughs> but equally that was their entire night was about the beer, basically, wasn't it? Whereas we went for one, which pretty much lasted about two and a half hours, and we were actually in the pub talking about some big dreams that we've got, the bigger picture, doing some planning. Came home and had a roast chicken and some salad and some sweet potatoes and watched a film. It was nice. Yeah. It was nice. It was nice. It was nice. Insulin. Anyway, insulin. Talk to <laughs> So, Keris. Okay. Keris wanted to geek out. Yeah. We but... said we were going to start doing these more, uh, we're going to call them Fit Food Radio geek out sessions. And obviously, Keris is the geek. So, you tell me. I'm the, I'm you're, the jock. You're going to keep me on the straight and narrow with this one cool. so I don't kind of baffle everybody with cool. insulin. So, I'd say it would be nice to start with. I'm just going to start off by talking about what insulin is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So some people call insulin the master hormone. Yeah, I used to do that because it sounded cool. All right. <laughs> so in terms of, I'm debating this now, and this is thanks to, again, Dr. Brian Walsh has kind of raised this, this kind of question in me, because I used to think, like you, insulin's main job was storage of nutrients. Yeah. So when we basically eat food, and most foods will insulin response, but carbohydrates are known for the biggest. Being more like insulinogenic. Insulinogenic. Yeah. But proteins can as well, and that's why people take certain proteins and amino acids after workouts. So certain different foods have different insulin responses. And by that, I mean some can release a lot of insulin, or stimulate the release of high amounts of insulin, some a little bit less. And it was called the master hormone because it was thought, well, it was involved in kind of shuttling nutrients from the bloodstream into the cell, which is one of the roles that it does. And then it has some opposing hormones, 
that work to do the opposite. So the opposing hormones are when insulin is not up in the body, when insulin is not elevated, we have other hormones that are released. So I'm just going to shuffle back a little bit and say what insulin's main job is really, along with another team of hormones, but they all work in opposition, is basically to keep blood sugar levels between a certain range. That's what insulin is doing. And when you look at the research, we seem to have this kind of reference range where if blood sugar levels go, and I'm going to talk in in international, not US units, so it might be confusing if you're over in the States right now, but in over here we use international units. And if blood sugar levels go below kind of, when they start dropping down around like 3.5, we start to have this cascade of hormones released, which is glucagon, glucose is gone, really easy to remember. Mm. Glucagon, cortisol, also everyone knows cortisol is your kind of stress hormone, your waking hormone as well adrenaline which again most people know of adrenaline because that's what we release when we go and do some exercise and then growth hormone so these ones are designed growth hormone will block the uptake of glucose into a cell so they're all trying to keep glucose levels a little bit higher they're trying to raise glucose levels we have Mm -hmm. one hormone when glucose levels go high that will help to bring them down which is insulin yeah so we have one hormone if glucose levels go too high in the blood and then we have about four i'm sorry four that we have if, if glucose levels go too low so What that really suggests is basically the body fights to keep glucose levels at a certain reference range. But one thing that we've been teaching for years across our plans and and to our members is you really don't want glucose levels going too high. And what you want to do, we can look at kind of our response to foods. That's one way of doing it. And with a blood glucose monitor, you can have a look at what is your response to certain meals. And generally, the kind of thinking is that it shouldn't be going any higher than 7.8 after you've eaten. Mm. And you can test it but between one and three hours after you've eaten. Another really useful marker that I use a lot with clients, especially when I'm doing kind of blood chemistry, is fasted glucose. So what is their morning glucose? And 4.8 is kind of suggested to be a bit of a a sweet spot when it comes to your morning glucose levels, but below five generally. When that's going really high, again, this doesn't necessarily always mean it's about food. There are loads of things that can mean that the body's not regulating glucose levels very well. And that's what we're going to try and explain in very simple terms today, which is going to be very complicated. I suppose next up, I'll try and explain what insulin does in terms of in the body to, to bring glucose levels down is it's essentially released by the pancreas which is really important because the pancreas is made of cells and cells can get damaged very easily. Mm-hmm. But glucagon is also released by the pancreas. Yeah. So the two work really closely. The kind of alpha and beta cells of the pancreas, one is releasing insulin to bring the blood sugar levels down and one is releasing glucagon to bring the blood sugar levels up. So you've got this really kind of tight team there and they oppose one another. So mm-hmm. if one is being released and the other isn't. So there's actually a suggestion now that insulin's main job is to shut off glucagon. And glucagon's job is to basically run the body or provide kind of a source of energy in the fasted state. So when you're not eating, glucose is gone, you're not having anything, and glucagon goes around the body and it kickstarts processes, lipolysis, for example, which is you breaking down your fat stores for energy. And this is when people get really interested. Whenever I lecture on this, by the way, people are like, this is so fascinating because this is fat burning, really. This is fat burning in action. And I find it really interesting because it is, Basically, energy metabolism is how are we running energy management, basically, in a fed and fasted state? How is the body fueling itself? It's not about energy production, which is we're just either transferring food into energy or we're transferring stored body fat or glycogen into energy. So it's always about energy cannot be 
created nor destroyed. It's just transferred from one form to another. Mm. That's what energy metabolism is. But I think it's quite a sexy topic. Do you? You're, oh, yeah. You're like, mm. like super sexy. <laughs> well, it is because it's all about, firstly, it's all about fat loss. And it's also about performance. If you want to be better working in a fasted state or energy utilization in terms of running on your glycogen stores, on your fat stores. So that's why I find it oh, no, interesting. I mean, I'm not, I'm not. I'm not belittling it at all. I'm just um, bored. No, <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. if you said that? No, no. I'm just really bored. Right <laughs> yeah. uh, no, no, no. Not at all. Not at all. Like, and and I think it's one of those things that it is important to kind of have an understanding of it. And I know we said this is like a bit of a geek out and whatnot, but I think it is a good. Like we always say, you know, the more you can understand something, like the better. You yeah. know, if you can get your head around something a little bit more, you know, you don't need to have a thorough understanding or for a knowledge of something but you know to have a general outline of what something's all about and i think insulin at the minute i think it's good to kind of put some clarity on it because there is that kind of notion at the minute that oh you know carbs are bad because carbs ramp up insulin and insulin just storage hormone and fat storage carbs insulin uh, carbs are bad don't touch them you know go keto go low carb whatever and that for me is something that really bugs me because that's not the case at all. Well, actually, when you look at the kind of new stuff on insulin, I think it's why I'm really glad I'm a nutritional therapist, because there are so many other things that affect insulin levels, like inflammation, like infection, like... But a big one for most people is going to be an energy excess. That has a huge impact on insulin, which is... You know, something that you and I have always debated whenever we've got like a client case, I'm like, I don't understand why this client is not, you know, progressing in any way from whatever mood to weight loss or whatever. And you're, you've always gone go back to energy intake. And I'm like, no, she's no. eating too much. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh, he. I think you just said she. That's why I yeah, said sorry, she. Yeah. And actually, it definitely stacks up. I mean, what hormones do, we've said before, they're like emails. They go around the body and they kind of communicating what the environment is, what the body needs to do. So they've kind of got instructions, but they have actions. So all of them will elicit some kind of effect. So again, we know adrenaline will be like, okay, we're going to get constriction of blood vessels, elevate the blood pressure, deliver oxygen nutrition around the body. We're going to get raising of the heart rate, that, that kind of thing. So we know all these different hormones can have an effect, a physical effect on the body to adapt or to respond to the environment. Yeah. So we've got these two hormones. We've got insulin and we've got glucagon. So one is being released when blood sugar levels are, are coming up and one is released when blood sugar levels are dipping. And what insulin does, so let's say that you are in, for now, let's say you are, you've just eaten a meal. What happens is, and this is even more kind of intricate than we ever realized, is as soon as you've eaten a meal, the tongue has glucose receptors on, which we've talked about before. The tongue. The tongue. Tongue has uh, glucose receptors on, but also in the gut, in the small intestine, there are hormones known as incretins, which are released, which basically signal the pancreas and say, I've got some food coming here. You know, I've got some carbohydrates coming. You need to, the main one is called GLP-1, glucagon-like peptide 1, which signals the pancreas. And what we didn't know is the pancreas has actually been really efficient in the background and it's pre-made some insulin. So it's actually in advance. We thought insulin was released when we were eating the food. It was kind of being made on demand. Mm-hmm. Pancreas was going, oh, we're eating. We need to release some insulin, get those blood sugar levels down. But actually, the pancreatic cells make insulin and they put it in little bags ready for when someone's going to eat a meal. 
And it's the small intestine and these hormones inside the small intestine which signal the pancreas. So the pancreas can actually start to get the insulin ready, which means that your response to a meal, there's less of an insulin spike. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because the insulin's already been released as the food's being digested, which means by the time it's food is going, it goes into the, crosses through the gut wall, then what happens, all food basically generally ends up at the liver. So carbs, fats, and proteins end up at the liver. But we've already got insulin around the body ready to act on cells. And the biggest deposition for, your, for food or for energy is generally things like muscle and fat cells. So all the cells are going to use a little bit of the energy for their needs. So that, you know, a cell that's in, even the enterocytes in the gut might be like, oh, I need a bit of this carbs to run, you know, for my own energy. I need mm. to run, take some of this glucose, use it in the mitochondria, produce ATP to do my little bit of stuff. But then, then what happens after a while is once all the energy needs are being met, there might be, there's an excess. So we start to store it as glycogen in the liver, or it can be again in muscles or in fat cells. So we start to store any excess. So the small intestine is one of the first places which is integral in terms of making sure that you have a healthy insulin response to food. If that is knocked out, and there are various different ways where this can be knocked out, just think of small intestinal health, gut issues, that kind of stuff. So maybe there's some kind of problem with communicating from the gut to the pancreas. Yeah. It means that you won't do your pre-made insulin, you won't release it ready, and therefore you have a greater spike of insulin after eating because the body's suddenly like, whoa, there's all this food here. I need to pump out some insulin. Yeah. And we get a greater, higher release or increased release of insulin after eating. Does that make sense? Yes. You still with me? With you. Okay. So number one takeaway is basically gut. But not just gut, the way that you eat your food. So chewing, rather than having kind of liquid calories, can yeah. make a big difference to that first phase insulin response, as it's called. So yeah. the first phase insulin response is coming from the digestive system and chewing the food. And I think it, the stat is really ridiculous. It's something like 32 times if you chew your food 32 times. Wow. <laughs> right. But again, that would... It got, got me thinking about, I, I think, uh, like I have smoothies out of convenience. And I'm like, gosh, I wonder what my, you know, how that's affecting your... But wouldn't that depend on the food as well, though? Like, for example, you know, a steak would require more chewing than some steamed vegetables. Well, yeah, but what they're saying is that generally, if you think about it, we would have chewed prior to food processing, most of our food would be chewed, wouldn't it? Yeah. We would have eaten meat, eggs, vegetables, fruit, fish, bones, like think of caveman ancestral diets, chew, chew, chew. And now even... Caveman would have been eating eggs. Well, no, but to be fair, maybe raw. And then if you think about even like go back 50, 60 years, you know, sandwiches, all those kind of things. It's all chewing, isn't it? Whereas now it's a lot of things like smoothies and, you know, I have some kinds of smoothies, soups, you know, nut butters, those kind of things. Like we're mm. pureeing a lot of food for convenience yeah, yeah. more than anything, aren't yeah. we? Yeah, you know, we're like, okay, let's just puree everything and just get it down. Yeah. So that's an interesting one. If, again, so one of the first steps you might want to consider is to take out liquid calories for a start and definitely think about drinks. You know, that's an easy, quick win right there. Removing any kind of liquid calories in the form of fizzy drinks, lattes, milk would possibly improve your response to food and going back to more chewed foods. With regards to the, the smoothie one, it's a bit difficult. I think if you stack it with fibre, there's going to be a slower, you know, it's, it's going to kind of sit in the stomach for longer, but you are still yeah. missing the chew inside. So maybe you start to eat a stick of celery, eat a carrot, and then eat your smoothie. That's what? another option. That would get you chewing, wouldn't it? 
I tell you, I'm not feeling this. <laughs> I can't see this taking off. <laughs> what, eating a stick of celery before? To be fair, we have vegetable crudités most days. Yeah, but like with hummus and salsa. Yeah, but we have them before lunch and dinner. Why not before breakfast? Or start eating an apple before you eat your... An apple's a good one, before you actually have your breakfast smoothie. Porridge is another example of a food that you don't chew. True. 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 <laughs> we're going to lose the ability to use our jaw soon. Just like... Because we talk less, we use our phones, but the thing we is, don't chew our food. It's gonna be yeah. you're gonna start to get like seizure of the jaw. Just like you like we're like evolved to have like no jaw muscles. Yeah, yeah. Our jaw just be open all the just time. Like a pelican <laughs> with a pouch <laughs> just to put the food in. I bet you it's affecting speech in kids actually. I bet you. Why kids though? Kids kids aren't really doing smoothies for breakfast, are they? No, but parents pure they do this is a big argument and I don't even get involved in it. We don't have kids, so we have no right to get involved in this argument. But that's not true. This is why you do the baby led weaning where the food is put in front of the kid and they use their hands and pick up the food and then chew it. So they use a lot of things like chopped fruit and vegetables. Yeah. And chew it and that, that process of using hand to mouth and then chewing is all about development of jaw muscles, tongue and therefore speech development. Uh-huh. And now parents are pureeing food because it's cleaner, as in like easier, and spooning it into a child's mouth. And there's a big debate between parents. Where does that lead you? And some of my mum, parent, friends, dad, parent, friends have said, until you've had food splattered at the wall, yeah, uh, spaghetti and all sorts, you've got no, <laughs> you can't say anything. So, and I, I, I get it, do you know what I mean? I've got oh yeah, I can totally, yeah. Parent, I've got friends who are single parents and working. And, it's almost like you need a yeah. feeding room that's like wrapped like with like, Cling film. Yeah, or like, so, a, like wipe clean boards all around it. Yeah, that, everything, everything's a wipe clean surface. Yeah, yeah. And so then, it's like you just go in there, close the door, and let them just throw the food around they want to do. And then you can put something like Peppa Pig on so their jaw just falls open like it always does with Peppa Pig. And then you can just throw the food in when they get like. Yeah, when, when the jaw's <laughs> open. Oh, yeah, got that down then. How on earth did we get to this point from insulin? Anyway, so gut health, chewing your food, eating your food, avoiding liquid calories is your first thing, just a couple of things that you could do to improve your insulin response to a meal. Next up, so once you've got, as I've said, all food goes to the liver, a big factor that's being discussed at the moment is whether the cells of the liver are, and I, when I say liver damage, people think it's something really severe, you know, like cirrhosis of the liver, cirrhosis of the liver, where it's, you know, from alcohol poisoning or drug toxicity or something like that. But liver cells are just like every other cell in the body where they just need certain nutrients to run and do their thing and they just need to be healthy. Yeah. So it can be that your metabolism can be compromised by the fact the cells of the liver just aren't healthy and able to do their thing. And one of the things they need to be able to do is listen to the hormones mm-hmm. and understand, are we in the fasted state? Are we in the fed state? Do I need to be... So one of the roles of the liver is to make new glucose when we're in the fasted state. But how does the liver know if we're in a fed or fasted state? So that's one of the things that's kind of being discussed because sometimes the cells will shut themselves off to the outside yeah. environment if they're a bit metabolically damaged i'm going off on a bit of a tangent here but just liver health is is important Mm -hmm. so just to rewind back a little bit what happens next is you've just eaten some food insulin is released by the pancreatic beta cells and what it does is it comes around it's a peptide hormone which means it can't get into the cell it's made of amino acids so ones that can get inside the cell are made of cholesterol so they can pass through the cell membrane which is made of fats Mm-hmm. Whereas what insulin does is it attaches to a little satellite dish outside the cell, which we call a hormone receptor or an insulin receptor. So mm-hmm. it's like a bit of a lock and key, especially designed to lock into that little satellite dish. And then this cell knows, it says, right, insulin is here. And what insulin does is it's kind of knocking on the door and it's saying to the cell, 
there's some glucose outside here and it needs to come in and you need to take it in. And the cell makes the decision whether to listen, which is, again, slightly new kind of thinking here. And what the cell does is if it decides it wants to listen and it wants to bring the glucose in because it's healthy and it can do something with it, and this is a big factor, sometimes the cells ignore insulin because they know better. They're a bit like, it's too chaotic in here. I don't want to have any more glucose coming in. And one of the best comparisons I can make for this is imagine... Again, if we were doing a batch cooking session in the kitchen and you've seen me batch cook and I make a ton of mess in the kitchen. We talked about this before. This is my best kind of comparison of cell function. I make a big mess in the kitchen. I'm doing my batch cooking. But that's the equivalent to somebody consuming an energy excess all the time. It means that there is always this churning of nutrients coming into the cell. The cells constantly trying to metabolize them via the mitochondria and turn them into ATP, which is the energy, the fuel source of the cell. And if it can't, it starts to basically build triglycerides, and which is stored energy, stored fat, or it starts to send it down a pathway to become glycogen, which is stored glucose. So it will use what it can. It's got different pathways, different biochemical pathways to use glucose for function in the body to make things. And then after a while, it starts to go, Oof, gosh, you know, what? I'm getting a bit like full of nutrients so if we take it back to a kitchen it's a bit like you're doing a batch cooking session but at the same time I'm doing the batch cooking session and you're doing some big supermarket shops and you're bringing in the supermarket shop all the time you're doing loads you're like we need to stock up we need to stock up and there's no break for me so I'm trying to batch cook but then there's more food coming in we've got this big stack of recipes to cook the kitchen's getting really messy the nucleus of the cell is the fit food recipe book it's where all the recipes are that we need right and then it gets to a point where (laughs) we've got so much food in the kitchen so many shopping bags we're trying to shove it into the cupboards we're running out of space the sink is blocked from all the kind of waste products because i don't rinse the plates i just shove them in the sink and then it gets stuck with food sink is blocked so we can't even detox the bin's full it's overflowing this is what we call oxidative stress when your antioxidant defense systems can't deal with the amount of mess that's going on in a cell because creating energy in a cell is messy. We get waste products from just processing food in the, yeah. inside a cell. So this is what the kitchen is looking like now. It's funny, like I can actually feel myself getting stressed yeah. just <laughs> talking about that because the messy kitchen does genuinely really stress me out. And you're still bringing in more and more bags of shopping. At some point, I'm going to shut the kitchen door and go, no, no more food. I can't take any more food in here. There is just no room. And that's mm. what a cell does. It goes, no. I'm not going to listen to insulin and your insulin and you're knocking on the kitchen door going, I've got bags of shopping. You need to open the door. And I'm like, no. I've got ice cream here. It's melting. But then do you know what might happen is because I've shut the door. (laughs) I don't really know what's going on outside. I don't know how much more food's coming in either. Mm. You could be bringing in more and more shopping, but I've shut the kitchen door. So it doesn't matter. And what ends up happening inside the cell here, like this is kind of, if you want to go into the topic of genetics in some ways and, and cell change, is I can't find my fit food recipe book anymore. This, the kitchen is such a mess. So do you know what? What I can find is the takeaway menu. So I'm just going to ring for a takeaway. And that's how we get these genetic variations that take place, where a cell starts to make shortcuts to adapt to this kind of messy environment. And one of them is the nucleus is like, it can't run. It doesn't have its original, it doesn't use its original recipe book anymore. It doesn't use the original steps that should be. It starts to go, well, that can't happen. It's quicker to do that. This would be quicker in this environment. And for me, one comparison would be you just get the takeaway menu out and start ordering a takeaway. Don't even bother with the, the original recipe anymore. That's how we get the genetic changes. Wow. So You thought about that one, didn't you? A little bit. <laughs> 
and it, it, you know, someone better than me is going to pick holes in that analogy. But so what a cell does, and this can be any cell in the body, could be a cell in the liver, as we've just mentioned, is suddenly shuts the kitchen door and says, right, I've got to deal with this mess. But the problem is, once you've got that messy kitchen, what starts to happen is you've got glucose in there, you've got fats coming in there, because remember, yeah. meals are all these different macronutrients. And what the cell will do is try and use them. It actually makes, um, do you know what hexosamines are? No. It's things like glucosamine, for example, which mm-hmm. are all the carbohydrate kind of compounds that make up our joints and the fluid around our joint and mucuses and things that, that line all the, you know, kind of eyes and nose and things like that. So right. that a lot of them are made of carbohydrate compounds and cells can make those. But what it will do is, so the body will start trying to use all of these macronutrients that are coming in. It will make some hexosamines, it will make some stored fat. But eventually, when the kitchen is messy and full, all of these macros start to kind of react with one another in a non-enzymatic way, almost because they're just reactive compounds. So we get what we call kind of glucolipotoxicity inside the cell. Right. It's just a mess, essentially. So this is why we get what we know as insulin resistant is actually more a cell defending itself and saying, I have too much energy inside here. And that's why, going right back to your point, an energy excess chronically implemented is probably one of the biggest drivers of disease. Because that cell could be any cell. It could be a neuron. It could be a pancreatic cell. Remember, the pancreas is there busy making insulin. It can't. Its kitchen is ruined if it becomes. And the thing about the pancreatic cells to know is basically they just let glucose come in and out all the time. It's not controlled. It doesn't have anything. Most cells like muscle and fat cells have GLUT4 transporters, which when we know that we need to bring some glucose into the cell to get to bring the blood sugar levels down, they move to the edge of the cell. Remember, I've called them sugar taxis or yeah. carb taxis or glucose taxis. They move to the edge of the cell and they will then lock into the cell membrane and they'll pull the glucose in and they'll take it into the cell and we'll use it for cell function, hopefully. Maybe store it as glycogen, maybe use it for certain processes inside the cell. But what happens with certain cells, like neurons, for example, and like uh, pancreatic cells, is they kind of need to know what the blood sugar levels are all the time. So they have these different kind of two-way receptors where glucose can go in and out without control. So they're most vulnerable to damage with high blood sugar levels. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what would happen normally in a healthy cell is insulin gets released. So this is you kind of coming in with the shopping, knocking on the kitchen door and saying, I've been to Sainsbury's, got all the shopping, and I go, right, you know, in a clean kitchen, empty all the cupboards, get come ready, forth. come in. The kitchen's clean, come in. I've got loads of space because I fasted 12 hours overnight and I've done some exercise and <laughs> like, <yeah. laughs> and you can put the shopping away and it's easy. In the cells where that's not happening, as we've just mentioned, one of them is because there's this energy excess. But in a healthy cell, insulin knocks on the door and basically what the cell does is lots of different signaling system that takes place below the cell membrane so on the other side of the kitchen door so this might be you knocking on the kitchen door but you know basically there's two of us in the kitchen and someone says carries food to come in and i open all the cupboards ready and we all get ready if that makes sense mm. for the food to come in and the same thing happens in a cell in that below the cell membrane surface so insulin is attached to the satellite receptor and then there's something called insulin receptor substrate one, which basically triggers lots of different, I was thinking it was like a little domino cascade below the surface of the cell. Yeah. And the cell gets ready to bring the glucose in. Mm-hmm. And a couple of things it does is it increases an enzyme, which is responsible for storing glucose as glycogen. So it activates that enzyme. So yeah. it gets ready to basically put it away as glycogen. That's a good thing to do. Another thing it will do is stimulate the GLUT4 receptors and send them to the edge 
of the cell ready to bring the glucose in. So this is about me being in the kitchen with some helpers and saying, get to the door, go and help Matt with the bags, essentially. And they come to the door and they're like bringing the, the glucose in. Yeah. Bringing the okay. shopping in. So insulin has two roles when it attaches to the cell. One is glucose disposal, which I've just told you. So make it glycogen, send it into mitochondria for cell needs, whatever it might be, and bring it in via the GLUT4 taxis. And the other role that insulin has is cell proliferation. So growth, essentially. Right. And what they've noticed, and this is the second pathway called, you don't really need to say, but ras snap k pathway. What has been noted is when a cell is insulin resistant, so it's not taking in the glucose, so I've shut the kitchen door on you, I'm like, no more shopping. Yeah. But cell proliferation in the body continues. And that, I think, is one of the reasons why insulin resistance is then implicated in conditions like cancer, for example, cell proliferation, acne, cell proliferation. Um, acne is when you know things like the cells that, that basically form this, the surface of our skin just begin kind of multiplying and blocking pores and they're stimulated to think of like sebum which produce sebum you know like the which is part of your kind of defense of the skin right. it, you know the oils of the skin essentially right. antimicrobial all that kind of thing but they get overstimulated if insulin is kind of being pumped out cell proliferation so you get sebumaria where we get loads of sebum being produced by the skin and then also the cells that line the skin are proliferating so they're blocking the pores and that's how you get whiteheads oh wow <laughs> so that's why insulin is involved in acne and other kind of disease states well, it's only because like acne you normally associate don't you with like teenage years and it's yeah, like yeah. oh you know it's hormones it's hormones which it is you know yeah, it's an but... extent and so that's just kind of one example but the more that we come to learn about how the hormones all affect one another high insulin can drive up testosterone for example and that's why it's also implicated in things like polycystic ovarian syndrome and or androgen production generally. Right. And conversion of testosterone into its more potent form, DHT, which again is associated with everything from acne to balding hair to prostate problems. Right. Enlargement of the prostate. So insulin, what happens is possibly because the cell is not listening, the cell is going, I ain't taking the glucose in. I ain't taking the glucose yeah. in. Insulin levels continue to rise because the body's like, glucose levels aren't coming down pump out more insulin and insulin continues to act on this cell proliferation this rasmap k pathway on the cells but the cells aren't clearing the glucose so can yeah. you see how that becomes a vicious cycle yeah of course so just going back to kind of the number one thing to kind of think about here is an energy excess and i'd also add to that not just an energy excess because an energy excess is going to mean you've just got this really messy kitchen where you can't take the shopping bags in and put them away but also the frequency of your eating yeah. patterns. So the frequency also because eating more than every three hours is also going to affect small intestinal health because small intestine run this kind of cleansing wave to get ready. They kind of the turnover of bacteria ready for the next meal. Whereas if you're eating really frequently, snacking, grazing, liquid calories as well coming in, it's going to mean that firstly, you're always going to be working insulin, elevating insulin, taking on a certain amount of calories, maybe in excess. And the small intestine isn't getting time to kind of run its cleansing wave and get ready for the next mm -hmm. meal. So I think looking at, we've already talked about chewing food, eating a certain way, but the meal frequency I think is really important and trying to get into a habit of three to five hours between meals. And the reason I say that is some people feel better on three, eating three every three hours, some are more five, six, but you're going to get a natural decrease in hopefully energy intake as well if you're kind of decreasing meal frequency. Yeah. So we often say to people, stop snacking. Like just simple, simple. And I mean liquid calories and... Yeah, well, for, for, for a lot of time though, uh, 
you know, kind of like we often talk about snacking being just quite, I suppose, habit-based. Yeah. You yeah, know, and, and people do it out of pure habit, out of boredom, rather than kind of like genuine hunger. Yeah. And also there is that kind of belief of, uh, you know, people do still buy into that kind of eat little and often yeah. to boost metabolism, improve fat loss, blah, 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 which we know is like toffee. You yeah, know, yeah. It's rubbish. Absolutely. You know, and the only time that we often would suggest maybe in you know, smaller meals more often is is if someone had like a a hypertrophy goal, like if it was all yeah. about just like gaining muscle and putting on size, because obviously there, you know there has been studies that suggest it increases like muscle protein synthesis, and of course you know that's a pretty big deal if you've yeah. got like a, a muscle gain goal. Yeah. But other than that, for fat loss, it's not necessary to eat little and often. No. You know your your energy intake across the day, whether it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven meals. Yeah. Is what matters really the most. Matter. Yeah. And to be fair, across seven days, because again, if you're loading in a calorie excess of, you know, kind of, which is not unheard of in alcohol between one and 2,000 calories from Thursday to Sunday, then this is again where this problem will occur. Yeah. And another thing to note is to be able to put the shopping away in the cupboards and, and cook efficiently in the kitchen requires the micronutrients. So it's a big reason why we're always kind of emphasizing nutrient density is because of things like you know, B vitamins and iron and CoQ10 mm-hmm. and all those kind of things are needed for the body to be able to take those macronutrients and say, right, I'm going to use them for energy to fuel this cell, to fuel that cell, to be used yeah. for, for basic function in the body. But then also a lot of processes that we need to run in a fasted state. So the other side of it is to not need food all the time, to not need a constant drip feed of, of energy coming in. Yeah. You have to be able to run some other processes. So first of all, I mentioned... When we're not eating and blood sugar levels go low, what happens next is the pancreas releases instead glucagon. And glucagon's role is to start to bring blood sugar levels up by tapping into our energy stores. Yeah. So in a fasted state, we actually go to the liver and glycogen is one of our stored energy states. And a lot of this switching between using our stored energy and using food requires some of the B vitamins and magnesium and zinc. They're used for a lot of enzymes that are involved in these processes. So again, another reason to think about magnesium, B6 and zinc, all the B vitamins, in fact. So the liver is basically fueling you quite a lot in the fasted state. And Mm. first of all, we've got our liver glycogen. So we'll break down stored glucose in the liver. And the liver will also run a process known as gluconeogenesis, Mm. which is basically make new glucose from something that isn't glucose. And that can be, so that's not glycogen because glycogen is stored glucose gluconeogenesis can be using things like fats it can be using various different kind of metabolic intermediaries that are in the cell things like pyruvates lactate there's things that are kind of components of our macronutrients once they've come in they're being converted intracellularly and the liver's very good at going oh i'll take that and i'm going to make it into glucose and we always have to run gluconeogenesis to a certain extent because things like red blood cells and some of our neurons can only run on glucose yeah. They don't have the ability to run on fats and they don't right. have the ability to run on protein. That makes sense. So gluconeogenesis is running in the background. And again, so this is one of the things that when insulin is released, it stops that straight away because it says, actually, I've got some glucose coming in. Don't make yeah. new glucose. Yeah, because this is like, this is readily available. Yeah. Have eat. <laughs> so they think one of the problems is when we get hormone resistance, insulin resistance, the liver cells don't know this and continue to make new glucose. Does that make sense? Yeah. And drugs, okay. like diabetic drugs, one of their roles is to stop gluconeogenesis in the liver. And that's how they act. 
on that process. Mm. So a key kind of component to diabetes generally, and this is type two we're talking about, but with regards to type one, it got me thinking, I'll, I'll talk more about type one diabetes in a second, about how that may have come about just from damage to the, so just to clarify, type one diabetes is when you're not producing insulin anymore. So the pancreatic beta cells have been basically kind of destroyed by the immune system. So there's been some kind of autoimmune response. So they can't produce insulin and therefore that's why you inject and it's thought that you inject. That's type one. For the rest of your life, yep. And then type two is more where we're looking at everything we've just talked about here. It's more about kind of insulin resistance. So insulin is being released, but the cells are not responding and not taking the glucose up. Yeah. Now, one of the big questions that's come about with the new research is a lot of what we do in functional medicine, nutritional therapy, and even conventional medicine is try and force glucose uptake into the cell with what we call insulin sensitizers or things that help make the, they look like insulin or they act like insulin. And actually, is that making the situation worse? So essentially, if we go back to the messy kitchen, it's basically you get a bit more forceful at opening the door. <laughs> you still come in with the shopping. Kick the door down. Basically, yeah, in the form of green tea, supplements. <laughs> no, but like things that are offered, alpha-lipoic acid, those kind of things. Now, some of the things that we offer in kind of uh, nutritional therapy work, you know, in different ways. So alpha-lipoic acid is also an antioxidant. So it's actually got a bit of kind of cleaning properties, a bit of domestos in it. So it can come in and start cleaning or maybe not blocking the sink. So it might help in that sense. Right. As well as knocking the door down. But a lot of things, a lot of the focus has been how to get glucose into the cell rather than saying, do not think the cell has decided it's a defense mechanism to not have it come in. So one of my big takeaways from all this, and by the way, it's not just energy excess, but how beneficial things like fasting would be in this situation. And we've talked about somebody who is severely overweight, you know, obese. Yeah. Fasting would be phenomenal for them because what they would then start to do. And one thing I haven't really talked about is Remember that I said to you that the deposition of energy in the body is going to be places like muscles and, and body fat cells, so mm -hmm. adipocytes. What happens with muscles is we get so much kind of intra inside muscle cells. We get such a buildup of fat because basically it's kind of like, you know, the kitchen's full of shopping. We're just shoving it anywhere now, which any kind of place we can. And this fat oxidizes. It becomes it's called ceramides. It's kind of a toxic fat and it can make the muscles insulin resistant. So then right, we're losing yeah. one of our best places to store, you know, energy. And also, again, we're losing the communication. So if you think about we've gone from having kind of 4G in a healthy person in terms of communication and, and mobile networks and signaling right mm -hmm. down to no G. We're going down to no G. Like no left, G. left hand doesn't know what right hand's doing. We don't know if we're fed. We don't know if we're fasted. We don't know if we should be burning fat or making new glucose and breaking down. So the other thing that happens here is when the fat cells don't really know if we're fat, they become insulin resistant. They think you're starving. They think you're fasted because there's no, nothing coming in because they've shut down, essentially. And right. they start to break down triglycerides, which is stored body fat, and release them into the bloodstream. So they're like, whoa, we've got no energy. I'm going to release some triglycerides to fuel the rest of the body. And the liver's going, yeah, I'm making new glucose. <laughs> like, so we get this massive like, kind of shitstorm, is the best way I can put it, of high blood sugar levels and high triglycerides, which is what we see with things like diabetes, heart yeah. disease. And again, the big driver here has been being overweight, energy excess, but it's also been a lack of hormone communication. And that's right. why, again, it's one of the first interventions that we should also be doing is restoring a little bit of kind of 
hormone sensitivity with things like omega-3s, for example, so hormonal communication and yeah. the cell can understand what's going on in the inside and internal and external environment. But again, creating an energy deficit is going to be your quickest win. But it's, I, I, I do think, you know, like there's... Because obviously where your food comes from is very important. You know, how energy-dense your diet is, yeah. i.e. calories, is also very important yeah but this is the reason why and, and this is the the thing we often talk about is that you actually see improvements in health markers in obese individuals who have lost weight through what would be deemed as unhealthy means yeah you know all these kind of shake diets and things like that and shake diets you know or even a you know a kind of flexible if, diet if it's your macros yeah, yeah. you know and it's not as kind of nutrient dense as one might like a healthy diet to be but it has meant that their body fat levels have come down and therefore as a result of that fasted blood sugar yeah um, has improved pressure, blood pressure markers. exactly yeah. and it's you know it's like we often give the, the example of the twinkie diet and that guy who followed the a diet that was two-thirds from processed foods such as Twinkies, Oreo cookies, diet soda. You know, he took a multivitamin. He had a protein shake as well to keep his protein intake up. But over 10 weeks, I believe he lost 27 pounds and his health markers improved despite two thirds of his diet being made up of processed foods. Sorry, I've missed an absolute clanger here. He was in a calorie deficit. So he worked out his, his calorie requirements. He was in a calorie deficit. And he wanted to prove that calories are most important when it comes to fat loss. But he obviously, as he was a doctor himself, he obviously ran tests at the beginning, at the end, and health markers improved yeah. because he lost twenty-seven pounds. So he was clearly overweight. Yeah. And he openly said he doesn't recommend it as a long-term diet. Of <laughs> yeah, course, everyone the, was literally just adding Twinkies to the, to the shopping <coughs> list. Going, can you get them in Sainsbury's? Twinkies, Twinkies? Twinkies are horrible, though. Have you seen them in those like um you know those candy shops that do all like the is that they, like they, the, they do like American like candy a donut on a stick? I can't. Well, I suppose it's like a like a like a sausage shaped donut, right? That's kind yeah, of something like that, and they've got a bit of cream in the middle. I think. But it, to me, I'm like I don't get it. I like if I'm going to have something, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get the whole Twinkie <laughs> thing. I've never tried it, but even what, just what, to look at. What but, I would say, just, just to, on that point, was where that t- style of, and we'll talk more about other things that go wrong because a lot of people will be here saying, "I've tried that, it didn't work." You know, I said, tried calorie reduction. Mm. I tried to have a little bit of what I fancied. Is if you aren't eating the nutrient dense side of things and also looking after the gut bacteria with plenty of vegetables and fiber and root vegetables and healthy starch and you're not getting all the bees in and your iron and stuff, some other system will crash in the body. Yeah. So if it's going to be something like the nervous system, you're going to get so depressed and have no willpower and suffer from cravings. If it's musculoskeletal, you're just going to get injured and then not be able to train. And then just so, so yeah. some other system will crash without the nutrients. And that for me is when you've really, if you're looking at sustainable fat loss, you need to factor in the hormone side of things, definitely. You need to factor in, as you said, go right upstream and like why you were so obsessed with ice cream in the first place. You yeah. need to factor in the calorie deficit and you need to also think about nutrient density. Everything that we have kind of factored into Fit16, we weren't big fans of tracking, but some people do Fit16 and track, you know, in terms of yeah. track their calorie intake. But what we did was say, you're going to do an elimination diet, come off processed refined foods, and that's going to naturally create an energy deficit and also reset appetite and satiation a little bit more and increase protein as well. 
so that's how we kind of go about it but we've personally found you know the track inside worked out to be too much for a lot of people and overwhelmed and people are a bit over that that side of it after years of that but yeah it's still important so of course it is and you know it's and it's like we always say you know you you don't have to track to get results but we often suggest maybe giving it a try because a it may well work for you b it might open your eyes up a little bit to the way you have been eating and maybe you've been eating more than you think which is often the case <laughs> a lot of people massively underestimate so like i always say they underestimate how many calories they consume and they overestimate how many calories they burn yeah. uh, when they're exercising or in the gym or whatever but even if it's just to get your head round just some basic numbers you know roughly how many calories are in a portion of the food you eat on a regular basis roughly how much protein fat and carbs are in the foods and the meals that you eat on a regular basis because then you just start getting a bit of a ballpark figure you start getting a rough idea and you can be a little bit better at guesstimating and adapting your nutrition you know in accordance to your goal how you're feeling the type of training that you've done etc etc i mean yeah my concern at the moment is as all this research is, is kind of coming out, I think it's really important. My big concern is that we're going to drive the nation back to calories in, calories out. And the food and health industry are going to jump on that. And everything is going to be labelled. Yes, which... I think it's relevant, but I also feel like we are we're becoming a little bit robotic in a lot of ways about a lot of things. And health is one where I do want to keep an element of kind of intuition about that... what is a good food, what is a bad food. Yeah. It's not just about the calories. And, and it also creates... I had a friend... But, uh, but it's not really so much a case of good and bad foods, is it? Because no, but, but I have a friend... It's, it's like to say, sorry, to, sorry, like... Oh, I just want to say this story. I had a friend who was obsessed with calorie counting and she only ate out and in places like food to go, places like your kind of, uh, your prep, your eats and things like that because she could then count her calories right. and stay under 1,200, which was her goal. Yeah, yeah. And there was nothing education in it. She didn't give a, a toss about nutrients or gut bacteria or fiber or anything that is also important and so it was she relied heavily on processed foods for mm. that reason and i see that a lot in the diet industry yeah. but i suppose that but that's the key though isn't it it's like um, calories are talked about a lot at the moment because well they're important but there needs to be you need to be able to make that clear divide between when it comes to losing fat or losing weight we need to be in a calorie deficit calories are the most important thing in that respect but from a health perspective, we can't just ignore where those calories come from. You know, and anyone who does kind of, you know, like people push the calorie side of things a bit too much now. And rightly so, they're important. We can't ignore it. I'm not saying that for a second. But it's almost like, yeah, but it's not just about calories. Because, you know, if you got you were in a 500 calorie a day deficit and you got every single one of those calories through from jam on toast chances are soon enough you're going to feel like shit you know and you're not going to want to stick to that diet and, no. and you're going to then just binge on a, on a kebab or something like that that's got fat and protein in yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and whatever else but also so, think about things like you know not not that people do tend to go down the kind of low fat route but fat soluble vitamins fundamental for fertility absolutely. reproduction sex hormone production and all of those do play a role in kind of all the hormones are always influencing one another as i've just said so insulin and glucagon are important but sex hormone production is equally important and the cells that are responsible for making those you know like hormone glands the testes the, the ovaries like they also require antioxidants they require vitamins and minerals to be able to 
you know, zinc and magnesium are well known for if a man has kind of testosterone issues, zinc, magnesium, CoQ10, because it's the cells of the testes that are mm -hmm. making those hormones as well as signals from the pituitary gland in the brain. So I just think it's really important that that message is out there for sure. And for if you're in the overweight, obese category, that's your biggest, quickest win right there. Lose the weight and yeah. a lot of things are going to happen. Same for joint issues. Yeah. Lose the weight and a lot of things are going to kind of fall back in. <laughs> and if you're type 2 diabetic, lose the weight, you know, and, and, it's, and do it ideally, as we've just said, in a way, do it with Fit16 is, is your best bet. Trust hey, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, but do it in a way that's going to support long-term sustainable weight loss keeping it off because hmm. you've got energy you've got health you're pain-free you're managing the disease effectively because you've treated the cause and i suppose just to go back to another couple of things that because a lot of people might be sat here going well i do a lot of this stuff and i've still got blood sugar issues and i've still got you know i'm definitely one of those people that gains weight much more easily one thing I will say, again, is, is there are other hormones like thyroid hormone, which are also kind of require a lot of nutrition and require some fundamental lifestyle factors to be in place. And the immune system is always working away in the background. Mm -hmm. And a few things that will cause insulin resistance are infection and high amounts of inflammation in the body. Yeah. So they can add, but then equally being overweight, we get an increase in inflammatory cytokines which are the inflammatory chemicals that go around the body signaling the immune system. So being right. overweight is a state of kind of chronic inflammation and therefore that will cause insulin resistance if right. the cells aren't responding. So that's another vicious cycle. But this is what, just going all the way back to kind of type 1, it's why with type 1 diabetes, there's links with viral infections, for example, with most autoimmune conditions, but with type 1 diabetics. And it can be that there was some kind of infection that was causing insulin resistance. And then there was, you know, high amounts of insulin being produced. There's loads of kind of different mechanisms. But if you've ever had kind of viruses or kind of really severe illnesses, if you're having your inflammation markers checked, good ones would be high sensitivity C-reactive protein, homocysteine, ESR, which is, again, done standard by a doctor, even looking at calprotectin in stool. If you've got inflammation going on, there's a chance that you are insulin resistant or that the cells are kind of not responding to that and again we might have some people say that that kind of glucose gets devoted towards the immune system as well in, in times of that mm -hmm. defense so blood sugar levels can be low high all over the place well, so there are other other factors that can can and lastly this is the last point i say is also do you remember we mentioned lipopolysaccharides a long time ago a few podcasts ago. Yeah, when well, language about it. <laughs> <laughs> and metabolic uh, endotoxemia, which is when it's like the kind of tail of gram-negative bacteria in the gut that breaks off right. and can pass into the body. So if you've got kind of dysbiosis, too much bad bacteria, or, you know, kind of messed up gut, passes over into the body, especially with saturated fats and coconut oil in particular. And high amounts of lipopolysaccharides essentially means you've got some gut dysfunction going on are also associated with insulin resistance. So that's how they become a driver of metabolic disease or metabolic right. endotoxemia becomes a kind of factor in this process. But again, it goes right back to when you're looking at all of this, yes, there may be some kind of infection and yes, there may be low-grade inflammation. So it's an anti-inflammatory diet, which we have always kind of discussed. Maybe you need kind of some pharmaceutical intervention or supplement intervention possibly to address it. Maybe you need antivirals, antibiotics, antibiotics to address the, the kind of infection be that in the gut or systemically to restore everything but the, everything else still stands that we've talked about in terms mm. of then you've got to make sure body composition is healthy nutrient status is good things like iron are just so important for well, this and the thing is you know 
for me, I just always think, you know, being fat is not healthy. You know, nothing about being overweight and carrying excess body that's, fat. That's the headline, they're right there. <laughs> well, but, but, it, but it's true. And, and, you know, we shouldn't be carrying like a, a huge amount of body fat. I'm not saying men should be absolutely shredded. You know, we shouldn't be. And in fact, a lot of men who do get absolutely shredded for bodybuilding competitions or uh, fitness competitor competitions, there's a reason they don't look like that all the time. Because it's, well, it's unsustainable for most. And for not only from a sheer willpower point of view, but from a health point of view. Yeah. You know, men that diet down to those like very, very low body fat levels. That often see testosterone, testosterone mood drops, mood health, yeah. you know, their energy to actually train and, and even function, you know, well day to day, you know, it, it goes down. Hence the reason why they bring calories back up, they bring fats back up, et cetera, et cetera. And the same with women, you know, I'm not saying women should be a size six or a size eight or whatever it may be. And, and, and everyone comes in different shapes and sizes. But if you're carrying a hefty chunk of body fat, you do not need to be a genius to work out probably not good for you and there's a reason why a lot of people that when they do reduce body fat through whichever mean they've chosen feel better walking feels better going up a hill feels better all of a sudden you can do an, a do a pull up because mm. there's less of you to shift like yeah, yeah. and that's why when people you know say to me oh man how can i do more pull-ups and i'll be like well lose weight for a start yeah yeah because it'll probably help you yeah <laughs> <laughs> bit of a no-brainer right but and, it's, it's hard because it became a topic for a long time that you couldn't really talk about especially you know as a woman i think like i've talked in the past about kind of disordered eating orthorexia and those things are important and i course. definitely had a fear for a while of talking about kind of fat loss and I know for a fact I was judged by fellow nutritionists for being a bit kind of but you're a trainer and you do before and afters and you Mm. you talk about weight loss and that's not healthy we've got this kind of epidemic of disordered eating and orthorexia and eating disorders as well and I completely agree but I see like you I just see both ends of the the spectrum a lot Mm -hmm. and my job is to try and help everyone so we do write a bit you know about eating disorders body image body confidence orthorexia but we're also trying to say I'm not a huge fan of people who are in the overweight obese category on social media saying it's great to be this curvy I think curves are wonderful I completely endorse you know like a healthy amount of body fat in a woman but when it becomes to the point of like we've just said, metabolic dysfunction, inflammation, then that's no longer a role model to mm-hmm. people, especially when we are in an obesogenic environment that tells us to eat all the time and move as little as possible. You know, the yeah. last thing we need is to be told that this is a desirable, it's desirable to be a plus size person, essentially. We yeah, just that's need to, the thing, like, it's just this nice middle ground that we all need to come into, you know. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think you kind of seem to have one extreme or the other at the moment. You have like these super lean athletic individuals, skinny individuals, you know, on Instagram, almost glamorizing very, very low levels of body fat and kind of, you know, being a certain size all the time, whatever. Or you have the opposite end that's... And I've never understood this whole plus size model thing. I don't agree with that. I think you're either a model or you're not. I don't care what size you are. If you're a model, if someone's paying you to wear a certain garment, you're a model. Do you see what I'm saying? But these women are gorgeous. And I just think that you can be gorgeous and you can be two to three dress sizes less so that you're in a healthy reference range for body fat. But that's what I'm trying to say. And there is a reference I, 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 range. I, I, all I'm yeah. saying is, is there, you know, don't glamorise being super skinny or super shredded all the time. You know, don't glamorise being overweight. And because 
So don't mind. It's always either either end is a bit of an extreme. Yeah. That is gonna impact your health. Yeah. My, my negatively. Goal, my goal, body composition, for me and for all my clients, is not to think about it anymore. <laughs> Which means we're implementing healthy energy management through lifestyle happily. So through yeah. exercise, if we like exercise, through lifestyle, if we like lifestyle, through food, because we enjoy those foods, and we're not freaking thinking about it. And that yeah. was one of the reasons we developed Fit at 16, because we were saying, can we just start to eat a little bit more, you know, in a balanced way? It's very natural. Mm-hmm. This is what 80-20 looks like. Sometimes you're going to need to be yeah. 90-10. And, and we do this, by the way. We sometimes slip. We've just had a whole host of kind of family parties, engagements, and, and you know, I was eating my brother's birthday cake at like two o'clock in the morning, just slabs and slabs of ice in. And, you know, <laughs> after a few, and but that's been weeks and weeks of different celebrations. And after a while, I was like, okay, my clothes are getting tighter. And I said to you, I'm just going to go back to what I know, 90, 10. And that simply means, coach, you need to stop eating icing at two o'clock in the morning and probably yeah. a little bit less of the, the dark chocolate balls that I keep making and, and those kind of things because it, it became a thing where I was also tired from all the travel and the socializing so I was like if anyone put anything in front of me I had no ability to say no by the way so there's a, another key indicator of sleep but, but what I was about to say is rather than the big overwhelm and the big fuss just go back to kind of a 90-10 template yeah. you know for a month yeah. and you should come back in but there was lots of studies saying that the longer you do this for as in achieve a healthy body composition the less a calorie excess every now and then makes a difference anyway. Once the body can find a nice body fat set point. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 and like point. I say, you know, like um, everyone comes in different shapes and sizes. You know, I've always, I've given that example of a mate of mine, Banji, that I used to train with, you know, back in my teens, who was a black guy and absolutely shredded, ripped. Yet, you know, he ate like, chicken and chips and drank fizzy drink you know as did I I was a teenager is what we did but he was always absolutely ripped because genetically that was his body type yeah yeah. mine despite trying my hardest it never it it never happened (laughs) to this day let me finish I think like the point I'm trying to make is as well is like don't always necessarily make that association that because someone's ripped they're healthy you know because it might not be the case unless you are genetically very very lean and i've trained guys that are like this as well which was infuriating for me as a pt (laughs) i was like my client is absolutely ripped to pieces (laughs) Uh, which i can't take any credit for this just genetic and if anything their dilemma was i can't gain weight they couldn't consume enough food what a problem to have right and but so unless you are like that genetically to get that lean a, like I said, is unsustainable and it's probably not going to be very healthy for you at all. And going back some years when I followed a, a low carbohydrate diet before, you know, I had the knowledge and experience that I do now and I followed it for about nine, ten weeks, I was getting compliments left, right and centre about how amazing I look because I, you know, I, I lost body fat and I lost body water was low as well due to the low carbohydrate. And of course, to have lost body fat, I would have been in the calorie deficit as well. And everyone was telling me how amazing I felt, uh, how amazing I looked and, and what are you doing? What are you doing? All oh, you know, blah, blah, blah. And if anything, it was these compliments that kind of kept me going for as long as I did. And I felt like crap. I had no energy. My mood was low. And I know I've told this story before, but I kind of, the reason I'm telling it again is because I just, I want to make it very, very clear that our message here is, oh, you should, just shouldn't be overweight. But equally, you know, you can look a certain way and be of a certain body composition that might on paper look 
healthy, yeah, yeah. but it isn't. And again, it like you said, it just fair, it goes back to that balance. I have a lot of male clients, and I suppose because we're in the fitness industry, I do blood testing on quite a lot of them, and many of them come back who don't have a body composition issue at all. They've kind of come to me usually for gut or mood, and the two kind of common ones, or testosterone levels, and they all have high inflammation markers or maybe low iron. And low iron, by the way, can be the result of a an, you know, gastrointestinal infection or lots of things. So they have nutrient insufficiencies, high inflammation markers. But to look at them, you know, aspirational physiques for a lot of people if they were on Instagram. Yes. So yeah, you're completely right in, in terms of behind the scenes at a low level. So it's important to kind of bring it all together at some point. And I do think having a, a kind of decent health MOT once a year, you know, and, and same to you know, qualified professional Am I, are these blood tests healthy? Yeah. Is my body composition healthy? Should I be working in any way? You know, and, and any symptoms that you've got that have been ongoing, address those as well. So, yeah. Would you, but we, as I was going to say, we've digressed massively from insulin. So, I was that's cool though, that, because that, it all, you know. Well, the next, I think we could do another episode, some things that we can do in terms of supporting, because muscles are phenomenal, I have to say, when it comes to insulin health. Like, yeah. muscles can be really supportive. So, we should do one just on, on that kind of side of it and, supporting muscle mass and dietary interventions certain foods specifically are but you know what's good about this though is you know we've spoken about insulin you know you've dropped your knowledge bombs you've had, <laughs> you've had a little bit of a geek out hopefully i'm bored but, but again and this is what we always say it often comes back to the same thing doesn't it in terms of eating a variety of nutrients you know not banning a particular macronutrient yeah not eating too often you know, not eating too much, equally not eating too little, yeah, yeah. you know, and just kind of finding that element of a, of a fair, balance. A big takeaway from me looking at the latest research on this was how little carbohydrates do play a role in that side of it. And in terms of the weight gain side of it, I'm still a big fan of low carbohydrate interventions, but mainly because you're changing the palatability of the food as well. So yeah. taking out flour. And secondly, because there is some studies saying carbohydrate density in terms of when it's made into a flour and then put into a bread or a cracker or a crisper, not only is it more pal- hyperpalatable, yeah. so you eat more, it doesn't tend to feed the gut bacteria or create a nice kind of diverse range of beneficial yeah. bacteria which are involved in everything from insulin to you know, digesting food, making vitamins and minerals within the body. So when you think of it on a more holistic level, going back to the least amount of food processing in your diet as possible is always going to add that benefit but as I've said to you for me a takeaway on all this was gosh you know when I started out as a nutritional therapist I was all about trying to shove glucose into the cell I was like you know okay chromium and apropoic acid and like you know improve glucose uptake you know and actually you know do a hit session for every meal yeah (laughs) yeah um and that's really not the case And, and so again we go we go kind of more holistically and think about what is the low-hanging fruit, which for a lot of people is create that energy deficit, which we'll do a podcast on energy deficit next because I think that would be really cool to what could we do that's very effortless and organic. And there's some cool science on it that people may not realise that it's a lot easier than you think. Cool. So Is that that a wrap? That's a wrap. That's a long one. one, That was a long one, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, But some good bits in there, I think. Hopefully. Hopefully (laughs) it's not very positive, is it? I should hope so. We've just invested... An hour and a half of our time. Yeah, yeah. Okay. You can't get that back. Can't no. get that time back, Chris. It's no. gone. Right, guys. Hope you enjoyed. Um, any questions about today's podcast or any questions at all, fire them our way, info at fitterfood.com 
or catch us on social media. And if you haven't done so already, be so kind as to leave us a review on iTunes. It'd be very much appreciated. Any feedback to us is good feedback because it gives us the opportunity to either uh, massage our ego or um, <laughs> or make some changes based on the, the feedback. Constructive, of course, that, that you've given us. Um, have a good one, guys, and we will see you in episode 105. See ya. Bye.